welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. All right, everyone. Well, I've definitely got uh, someone that we're all going to be pumped to have on here. I've got Randy Ulmer. How you doing, Randy? Doing pretty good, Dudley. <laughs> Man, you're like an archery icon. I know you have a hard time hearing that sometimes because that's totally against your demeanor, but man you you make everyone feel not worthy with some of the stuff you put on the ground that's for sure well i don't know about that but i appreciate you saying it well you know i think it was a year and a half ago it was the first time that i got i got a text from you that said dude that's a nice muley so i knew i'd finally shot a real mule deer when randy ulmer sends me a text to tell me that the muley i shot was good well, I've spent my whole life trying to shoot a double drop pine buck. I've never even found one, let alone kill one. You kill this giant double drop pine buck in Alberta. That's uh, that's my dream buck. So uh, not the first time because you beat me several times in, in tournaments. It, it, it wasn't the first time I've ever been envious of you, but uh, <laughs> I was very envious. You know, I'll, I have to tell this story because, you know, I was like, uh, well, there's a couple stories I have with you, but the one was once I was already a pro, you know, I was in the position of where I just really wanted to be on a target with Randy Ulmer, you know, and I remember we were in, um, I forget where we, where we were, but we were at an IBO world championship up on a ski, a ski hill. And I remember we were a couple targets in and I was like, even with you and I'm thinking okay if I can hang with Randy then I'm going to be just fine and I remember we stepped up to this strutting turkey and it was way up the hill and I mean I was thinking holy cow how far is that I knew it had to been close to 50 yards you know and you drew back on that thing like three or four times and on your last time I could tell you're getting frustrated that your release wasn't going off. And I remember you pulled back and you were aiming for a while. And then you kind of closed your eyes like, dang it, it didn't go off. And you were about to let down and the thing fired. And you just like threw those big old Zeiss up on the target. Like, did I hit the thing? And I look up there and I'm thinking, I had to have just got five points on this guy. And I look up there and you were dead center in the 12 ring. And I just remember you looking at me and you're like, yep, that's how you do it. <laughs> I thought, there's no, <laughs> there's no way I can ever beat this guy if he's doing that kind of stuff. I mean, it was like you had this you had this untouchable zen back when you shot. It was it was probably the the coolest aura I've ever encountered when it comes to shooting with a with another target arch, you know, target archer. It was really cool, but that was a that was a definitely a lesson that for a rookie, you know, definitely don't run with the big dogs because when you got that kind of stuff hiding in that release pouch of yours, I don't want any of that. <laughs> well, I appreciate you telling that story instead of 
some of the other stories I'm sure you could tell where it didn't go so well for me. (laughs) (laughs) No, that was, that was awesome, man. But, you know, in all fairness, um, and for all you listeners out there, Randy, um, really has completely been responsible for, for my career going the way that it was because I ran into you as an amateur on a, on the practice range of an ASA tournament. And I remember you come, cause you saw me on the range all the time. I, you know, I was kind of one of the archers that I had the desire to do it, but I never could do it at the level that I was really wanting. And I spent more time practicing at tournaments than I was actually competing. Cause you know, I, I was never really doing well when it came to tournament performance as an amateur, And I remember that one tournament, you came to me and you gave me one of your Revenger releases. And I remember you said, kid, you're a great archer, but as long as you're punching the trigger, you're never going to amount to what you want to. And you said, take this, learn how to shoot it, and it'll change your life. And that is what I set out to do. And... I, you know, I remember, I remember it took me about three months, but I still to this day remember the first perfect shot that I made with that release. And at that moment, it all clicked of what a shot was supposed to feel like. And from there on out, I just told myself, if I can't execute with that shot, then I'm not going to execute. And you know, it really, it really did change me a hundred percent. So, you know, is that at what point in your career did you go that route to a back tension release to try to find that type of shot? Well, first of all, uh, you know, it's interesting because I remember that very well because you had been shooting uh, for quite some time, and and I remember uh, I was envious of your draw length, and you could hold a bow like a rock. And I would watch you shoot, and I would, you would shoot and shoot and shoot at the practice bells, and I thought, you know, this guy has so much potential, but you were just hammering the trigger. <laughs> and I thought to myself, if he only knew how to make a good shot, he would be a great archer. And so after watching you flounder for quite a while, <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I couldn't stand it anymore. <laughs> thanks for, the, thanks well, anyway, for feeling bad. Like, that was perfect, though. Yeah, but uh, no, it, and, and it did turn out very very well. But um, to answer your question, uh, I I uh, got a back tension release. I, I hunted for quite some time before I ever started shooting tournaments. But I was introduced to back tension release the first time I ever uh, joined a, a shooting league, uh, uh, an archery league, uh, an evening archery league, and um, a guy named Paul Flosinski. Uh, who was kind of the top dog in in my little area, uh, said, you know, you really need to try one of these. And I don't think I was punching the trigger, but uh, I tried it, and it was like a revelation to me, same as you, um, because I'd been a rifle shooter uh, quite some time, and, you know, you squeeze the trigger. So I was actually squeezing my release, but there's something about a back tension release or a hinge release, whatever you want to call it, a surprise release, that, that... that does something to you subconsciously, makes you aim, makes you focus on the shot, makes you follow through, and it brings a whole lot of dynamics into the shot that you'll never experience uh, 
most people won't experience with a trigger release. Yeah. So that was in that was in the actually a this will date me, but that was in the uh, uh, late eighties. So literally the entire time you pretty much held your reign as as three D. You you never really had to struggle like you know a lot of pros come in shooting like a you know a caliper release or even shooting a thumb release and and shooting you know a forced shot or you know they a lot of the people that are punching triggers have cool little names for them now controlled shot or um perfectly timed whatever they want to call it but you know literally the entire time you shot that was what you were striving for from day one really then yeah, the the, time, the whole time I shot competition. Um, and, and the one thing that shooting a, a hinge release uh, or a surprise release will do for you, once you, of course, once you get the hang of it, uh, it will make you much more much more consistent. There were people uh, now and then that were shooting, you know, um, a controlled release. And they're very difficult to beat when they're on. But... Uh, when they're not on, um, it's very problematic. They don't do very well. And a lot of pros you'll see go up and down and up and down. But you'll notice most of the time, if, 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 a, if a top pro is using a, a hinge-style release, they're very consistent. You know, they'll struggle maybe a little bit in the wind or in certain conditions, but they'll always be consistent. And that's because uh, they're not fighting their they're not fighting their brain all the time. They're just getting up and making a good shot. And depending on how they hold or how they're holding on that particular day, uh, they'll either be at the top or close to the top. Yeah. And it seems like, you know, even, and it's, and it's not necessarily the back tension release because really the, the key word is an unanticipated shot. And for me, when I work with like, when I work with national teams or, you know, or even I, there's been times where I've worked with Olympic archers to where when you ask them, like, what a perfect 10 in their mind is, some people can't really explain it. But I know that when I made that one shot where I was holding, I was not I, – I had no conscious thought of what the release was doing. My only conscious thought – was in my movement and in my hold and then all of a sudden it just it executed and I was and I just literally kept staring at the target and I watched that arrow spin right into the hole that I was aiming at and in my mind that was the 10 and and some people have just they're so worried about the release or the kind of release or the brand of release or how the release actually fires, but it's really about that execution and getting to that. Yeah. You, you know, you used the term Zen earlier, uh, and, and, and I'm not really, <laughs> uh, I, I don't really profess that you need to, to, to study Zen or, or anything like that. However, um, there is something very special and you're, you're trying to descri- describe a feeling and there's something very special about that feeling that you get in a perfectly executed shot. Um, 
where everything's relaxed and the release of surprise, all you are is you're letting your subconscious take over. There, There is a surprise element to the shot. You're focusing on, on you're not holding perfectly still, but you're, you're centering in, let's say, the 10-ring or the X-ring. You're centering and you're coming back to the center, you're coming back to the center. Something about a tension release or a, a hinge release that will... It, it, it makes your subconscious continually center. And when you reach that zen-like state, for lack of a better term, what I've found, and, and I've never got this in a, in a, in a um, trigger release, but what you'll find is that you'll actually hit better than you aim. And I tell people that, and they think you're nuts. But I'm sure you've experienced it in your career where when you're shooting really well, that you may be holding, let's say, as big as the 10-ring, a Vegas 10-ring, but you're actually shooting as big as the X-ring in Vegas. And that's because I think your subconscious is allowed to take over. And that centering motion or that centering feeling that you have in your entire body centers the, centers the bow, centers the pin, whatever you want to say, during the shot, even if you're not... Exactly. In the center, when it goes off, it will center as the bow is re- as the arrow is released, and uh, it's 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 very neat when that's going on. Yeah, yeah. There, I mean, there's like for my shot on uh, for slow motion photography, my shot takes um, about eighteen thousandths of a second. My draw length with with my target bows, and you know, even though that time is just instantaneous when your body is returning back to the center with it i mean and we're talking you know you're aiming so precise and yes you have the movement but literally within that same amount of fractions of a second your subconscious is already saying okay bring it back so it's already started that returning movement by the time that arrow clears and and that is what's happening, but you're right. You have to have the dynamics in order for that to all come together. And one thing that one thing that I found, and you know, and I just really believe that when you cover an object and your subconscious knows, you know that you want to hit. Say you want to hit a hole in a paper, or you want to hit, you know, a field dot. You're I think your subconscious actually moves you slightly off that target just so that it confirmed to itself that what you're telling it to hit is still there because you know it's kind of like it's kind of like my dog you know if if my dog can see my eyes she's like totally at ease in the house but it's funny I can like take a pillow and like cover my eyes to where she can't look at me and she's got to like come over and nose me cuz she she wants the confirmation, you know, that, that I'm looking at her. And I think our subconscious does that same thing. When we cover a target and we're telling you're telling it, you know, you need to hit that exact spot, I think it only takes a matter of time before your subconscious is like, let me see that it's still there. So it just naturally, that floating motion, that easy, slow movement, I think is all part of your subconscious doing its job as you're executing your shot. Yeah, I definitely noticed that shooting 3D tournaments. I, I don't notice it when I'm shooting a spot because 
when I'm shooting spots, I, I shoot a little differently than I do 3D. At 3D, I'm focusing on one spot. I'm trying to hit that spot. With the, in a competition, if I'm using a scope, I just kind of center my dot or whatever I'm using as an aiming spot in the center of the spot and just and just, just hold. But I do know what you're talking about when I'm shooting in a 3D target uh, because you have to move it off in order to make sure that you're still on it. And and But when you're shooting in a spot, I, I think there's something, and I think it's your subconscious, but I also think it's it's... It's your your musculature is is so well trained that you I, I kind of think of it and this is a difficult feeling to explain but I think of it as a rubber band if your rubber band is is let's say a rubber band was attached to the center of the target as you as you moved around uh, you're moving around but that rubber band's always pulling you back towards the center of the target and I think your muscles are somehow like that rubber band that is pulling you back towards the target and and once the tension is gone from the bow and the bow is actually being fired uh, that tension that that muscular tension that muscle memory is taking you back towards the center during that 18,000 so the second that it takes the bow to fire the shot yep yep yeah I agree I agree well that's that's super cool because a lot of people, you know, they're when they talk about, well, I have target panic and I want to shoot back tension. There's, I think, so many people are hung up on how to work the release. And from from my point of view, and what I like to teach people, and what I strive for, is I strive for knowing what a ten is in my mind, and I continually think back to that first time I felt a 10 and and that's that's my scoring system and when I stand on the line I strive to shoot a 10 based on that and not based off the paper and what I found is if I can execute nines and tens according to how I rate myself the scores always take care of themselves the scores are going to be there and they're going to be consistent like like you said and for me that was that was what was the the convincing factor for me was you know there was there was a lot of 3D tournaments that I won where I did not shoot my best but there was also some where I definitely shot my best and I didn't win but you know I know that score wise my scores never fluctuated high and low you know more than than like 10 or so points with 3d and a lot of times it wasn't good enough to win but it it was consistent and for me just putting myself in that contention all the time is that's where i wanted to be well exactly and if you're going to a tournament to win a check you know if, if you can get in the top 10 every time that you go and shoot you're gonna you're gonna earn money which is, you know, kind of like a golfer. You, you you need to get that check, and every once in a while you're going to pop up into first place. So, yes, exactly. Um, one of the things that that you've been talking about is is, is not shooting, um, shooting and trying during the tournament to shoot as many. You're, you're basically saying you want to shoot those tens, and by that you mean you want to shoot a shot that you know is a good shot, that feels good, kind of shot you know it's interesting i just started shooting targets again after a long hiatus and and 
everyone that has any kind of target panic, and, and most people shoot with this underlying fear, and I'm calling it fear, but it's anxiety about the shot, where the arrow's going to hit. And when I shot Vegas, you know, a few weeks ago, uh, what I did is I told myself, you know what, all I want to do is shoot each day 30 shots without fear. And what I what I tell myself that, it says, you're just going to get there and you're going to make a good shot. If you make a good shot, things are going to go well for you. And they did, because I shot without fear. And if you can get rid of that little anxiety that you have surrounding the release, it's not the release that it's a problem, uh, because a truly great archer can pretty much take in the release and shoot it well. It's around the anticipation of when that release is going off, thinking about the release instead of thinking about executing the shot. So, and, and, and again, that's what a hinge release does for you, is it, it, it helps to eliminate that. Now, that being said, one of the things, and you, you may be going to touch on this, but just in case you're not, I'm going to touch on it now because I think it's very important. When people are shooting a hinge release, I see so many people say, hey, I need to shoot a back tension release, I need to shoot a hinge release, and they set them up, and they set them up with a click. And for someone that has anxiety around the shot, um, I think that's the, the biggest disservice someone can do is set them up with a click. I think you need to shoot, learn to shoot a hinge release without a click, so it is a complete, relief, a complete surprise, because all a click does is tell you, okay, the release is about to go off, and then it, it basically makes it a trigger. Yep, yep. I think it's kind of like saying, well, I don't want to dive in the water, but I'll just jump in and hold my nose. I mean... <laughs> yeah, stick your pink, pinky in, and and it's a, it's a Band-Aid. It's not going to, you know, if you need surgery, you need surgery, and, and shooting a, a, a quick hinge when you've got issues with a, a trigger is a Band-Aid. Yep, yep. See, one thing you did now... When you gave me that first release, I did learn how to shoot a surprise shot. But the one thing that, that you did for a long time that I really don't see people doing anymore, and I did this, it took me about three years of doing it before I could really pick up any kind of release you wanted and get the exact same shot. But, you know, for the longest time, you had the big old Ulmer bag of tricks there. You know, you had several releases that were the exact same, but they were all set slightly different so that you could not start to get the feel of what kind of timing those releases had. And that was, and I did the exact same thing, and it worked great. It takes a lot of discipline. Yeah, I started doing that, and and I had never seen that. But what I did is I started out with one, and I thought, you know, I started getting that little anticipation. Now this thing's about to go off. So I thought, well, you know, I'll get two, and I'll just put them in the bag. They'll look exactly like, and I won't be able to tell. So I did that, and what I found is um, that uh, it it helped eliminate that anxiety, kept me completely honest, because I would shake the pouch up. But the, and, and I did that throughout my career, um, and I actually had seven releases in there. And and after about a year of doing that, I started putting a release in there that didn't go off or one that would click. So what I could do, very interesting thing, is if you, let's say you have seven releases and they're all set ever so slightly differently. So you don't know within three or four seconds or of, of pulling when it's going to go off. 
And the thing that keeps you completely honest, if you know one of them is just going to click, what I've found is if you develop tension in your bow arm uh, or your bow hand or really anywhere in your body, <clears throat> when you shoot and let's say you accidentally pull the one up that is just the click, what will happen is at that click, your bow will always, you have shots that you shoot and your pin is, say, in the middle of the X, but you shoot high right. You don't know why. Well, what I found is by using that click, what, what my bow would do is if I had a perfectly, like you call it a 10, I call it a perfectly relaxed shot, uh, <clears throat> my pin wouldn't even move. It would just go, boom, kind of just a little bump, but it would stay right in the center. And if I develop tension anywhere in my shot, when that click happened, my bow would jump a little bit. And what that told me and what that taught me is, is to maintain a perfectly relaxed shot. And it's very difficult to do, especially in a tournament. Yeah, but it does it does teach the discipline. And actually, this, this is a really good segue into the next thing that's kind of on this same topic. But I really wanted to talk about these types of release aids and shooting in the wind because everything you know that's a question that i'm constantly asked all the time and the one thing that you know this particular style of shooting taught me because again you know i watched you shoot and i literally tried to mirror what i was doing off what i saw from you and when you have multiple releases like that some are a lot faster than others and some are some are slow so what you figure out is if you pull a slow one out and you're not totally committed to the shot you waste a lot of energy sitting there messing around going slow so it it taught me commitment to the shot it taught me that when i engaged the trigger and i started my pull things were going to happen in seven seconds whether they were you know, my shot takes about seven to ten seconds from when I pretty much get my anchor, get into my peep sight. You know, things are going to happen within about that ten-second realm, and it's because once you're on the spot, you know, you commit because some of those releases were slow, and I think that type of discipline really helps a shooter. Can you know complete their shot with a hinge style release even in the wind? And some of the best archers in the tournament world, you know, Braden Gillantine, Rio, Jamie Van Natta, uh, Erica, you know, Erica Anschutz, they were all shooting hinge style releases and they shoot them just fine in the wind. And there's certain times they might, you know, you might get caught, but it's because they commit to it, isn't it? I think it's partially because they commit to it. One of the things that that, that helps um, shoot well in the wind, at least for me, is to be able to pull against the stops. Um, and if you're if you're grabbing all the release and pulling hard against the stops, you're going to be much steadier in the wind. And what happens if you just have one release and it's set very very light? What happens is you sit there and you're nervous that it's going to go off at any moment. And it's so light that when the wind does blow you, it changes everything just enough to make the release go off. Yep, so yep. that's why people, are, I believe, why people are afraid to shoot the hinge style in the wind is because they're the type of people that, that shoot the thing so lightly set that they're, they know that it's about to go off. They're afraid to commit to the shot. 
and they're hanging on the edge, and then when the wind does blow their left hand, if they're right-hand archer, uh, it provides just enough impetus for the release to fire. And so it's very, very frustrating. So you actually need to do what you're saying. You need to commit to the shot, grab a hold of that thing, and go ahead and rotate it through. Uh, and, and in the wind, it's nice to have solid stops so you can pull into the stops and, and steady yourself up. Yeah, it's funny because that's actually the very next thing that uh, that I had written down here. And, and actually several of these topics, I mean, some of the stuff is just you and I talking, but s- some of the topics here that I've kind of hit on were ones that people had um, had mailed in specifically for me to talk about. So the next one that a guy asked was, you know, how hard can you pull on the back wall? And I thought this would be cool for the two of us to kind of compare thoughts on this simply because I know that you do a lot of long range shooting with your shooting machines, you know, specifically to get your bows absolutely dialed in on the hunting side. But I also do quite a bit of that too. So I'm kind of curious to know, what what your thought is and what you found on that and then and then also what cams you've found to probably be the best or the the most forgiving with that thing thought you know with that in mind well i <laughs> that's a, a whole bunch of questions there and, and a whole <laughs> bunch of answers but just to, to, to start off with It all depends, and you know this, but I know. I think this is where you're trying to get me to go, but that all depends on the cam system you have, and it also depends on how well those cams are synchronized right. um, and what kind of knock travel your bow has. And that's something you can adjust with just about any bow. Well, you know, I take that back. I, and I, I shot one cam for many years, but it's it's back... It's, it's been back 15 years ago. So I don't know, but back then I had a hard time with the one cam bow uh, in being able to pull hard or, or creep because what happened back then, and, and you can probably answer this because you've probably shot a one cam since I have, yeah. but one of the things that I noticed with the one cam is if you pull hard into the stops uh, back then, and they may have developed something that stops this, but back then with the one cam, you pull hard into the stops, well, the top wheel or the, the roller, whatever, or the hydro wheel, yeah. will, will actually rotate a little bit and it drops your ankle, it drops your, your, I don't know exactly what it does, but I would I would tend to hit low when I, on every one cam I ever had, I, I tend to hit low when I pull hard in the stops and, 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 and I would shoot high if I happen to creep off the stops. So, and I don't know if, if, if that's still the case. However, uh, what I'm most familiar with now is the cam and half system and, and there are certain cams and ha- cam and half systems that are, are very, very forgiving, and I call it the creep test, and, and we've been doing it for 20 years, uh, 25 years, I guess. But, but that's where, and John's probably explained this to the listeners, but basically with the creep test, you you aim at, say, a 20-yard spot. It doesn't matter how far away it is. But you shoot, and you pull really hard into the stops. And then you shoot, and you pull less hard into the stops. And you shoot, and you actually creep a little bit off the stops, what you're doing is you're setting those cams in different positions. And what you're trying to do is build in forgiveness to your bow because none of us are machines. Everything is completely inconsistent. So you want 
those arrows to hit in the same spot. And what will typically happen if a bow's not the wheel's not perfectly synchronized, or let's say that there's a design error in the wheels, or, you, or your limbs aren't perfectly matched, you'll tend to hit high or low. And typically, most bows you'll hit high if you creep, and you'll hit a little bit low if your heart stops. But you can adjust the, the cams, especially in a straight two cam bow. It's, it's actually very easy to do in a straight two cam bow. You adjust the cams, timed. You time the cams, and, and I'm talking about a very, very well manufactured bow that that's uh, you know high end bow. Right. You adjust right. the cams, and and where where it's perfect. Like the bow I'm shooting right now, I can creep quarter of an inch, I can pull hard into the stops, and my arrow will hit in the same place. That, saying that, I'm saying that if I have what you call a 10, what I call a perfectly relaxed zen shot, yep. and, and you, if, you, you know, if you're torquing on the bow to, to pull it hard against the stops, uh, but you're relaxed on your creep shot, you're not going to hit in the same place. So you have to make sure that yep. your form is good, and don't blame it on the bow. But but you can pull hard into the stops with a very well tuned bow and still hit hit in exactly the same spot. Now yeah. I forget what the rest of your question was. I got <laughs> off on that tangent. But, no, no, because that's uh, that's important. And I think uh, you know I think I think if you do the creep test correctly, and some cam systems are more forgiving than others, and you know, and I do want to say, you know, there's there's a lot of single cam shooters out there, and there's a lot of binary cam systems out there. And with any bow company, you know, there's going to always be a cam in their selection that is a high-performance cam so that they're going to be able to advertise high speeds and market the heck out of who's fastest. But there's also going to be some cam options within their line that might not have that advertised speed that's going to be the highest but from a shootability point of view those are the cams that i've always focused more of my attention on the ones that aren't critical and ultra demanding because you know the reality is i know that if i have a lot of tension on me there's a good chance that the best I'm going to be able to do on a shot if I have a lot of pressure on me is maybe, say, an 8 out of a 10. And like Randy said, you need to know that you've got a bow that if you make a little bit weak of a shot, that is still going to go in the center. But, you know, the one thing that is always important is, like he said, your foundation. Your alignment has to be, your alignment has to be straight. Now, if you're not necessarily dynamic against the back wall. If you're set up correctly, you're going to have some forgiveness there. But I, I've really found that, you know, the cams that are always in the line that have a lot of speed behind them are typically just a little bit more demanding, especially when it comes to the amount of length in the valley. You know, you can creep a quarter inch, say on a Spiral X cam, much faster than if you had like a GTX cam, for example. And some people like that. But um, for me, I've always kind of went with the cam that was a little bit more forgiving when it comes to a bow that I know that I'm going to have a little bit extra, you know, pressure put on me when the moment of truth is there, so to speak. 
right? Well, 25 years ago, you know, everyone, we didn't have laser range finders, and, and it was very important for us to shoot a fastball in a hunting situation, or even 3Ds, that there wasn't speed limit. So, so we wanted to shoot a fastball, and so we always kind of took it to the limit. But now, I've gone, over the last 20 years, I've gone to where I'm actually shooting what people would consider a very slow bow hunting, not slow, but but compared to most, uh, I guess, target archers or 3D archers, I'm shooting pretty slow. And it's exactly the reason you're talking about. You know, we have a laser rangefinder. I don't shoot unless something's very close. I don't shoot without having range found at first. So I don't really care how fast my bow is. I'd rather it be slow and quiet and forgiving. So I've done exactly what you're talking about. I, I've experimented. I'm shooting a very forgiving cam, very forgiving bow, a little higher brace height. And, you know, everyone says, well, these fast bows with low brace height and really short axolized length are, are forgiving. Well, they are forgiving compared to a similar bow, you know, say 15 years ago. However, they're not forgiving compared to a, a bow uh, of this generation that has a, a higher brace height, longer axolized length, and a, and a more forgiving wheel. One of the things I'll say about a wheel is the higher the lead off a wheel the typically the steadier I can hold the bow and the the bigger the groups. A, a, a wheel that has a, a that doesn't have very much let off will tend to make me not hold better but shoot better. Um, it just is more forgiving because it comes away more crisply. There is more of an there's more there's more of an alignment. It's much more difficult to torque a bow uh, with a wheel that has a low let off than a bow with a high let off. So, so you will actually find yourself uh, uh, grouping much better with a bow like that, even though when you pull it back at the shop, it doesn't feel as good. Yeah, you know what's that's actually a really cool topic because there's a lot of bows and a lot of people the majority of the consumers they buy a bow just off pulling it back on the rack and like how easy they can hold it like hold it back at full draw and there's some companies out there that really have that but it, you know there's a fine line there obviously you don't want to you don't want a cam that's going to be impossible for you to to really make a good shot when it you know especially if a big a big deers or big elks coming out in front of you however you know earlier we were talking about the amount of time it takes on a shot cycle right so you know a lot of people if they don't have perfect form and perfect clearance on their face then those higher let off bows, that arrow sits back on your face for a lot longer period of time before those cams ramp up enough to take it away. So, you know, say a say a 65% let off or a 75% let off bow takes um, you know, say it takes, I don't know, twelve thousandths of a second to to clear your face before it goes well that 80 percent let off could take an extra two or three thousandths of a second before that ramps and leaves your face so any type of variance that you have either with arrow pressure fletching pressure um, any type of variance that you have in in what you're doing with your release hand or your follow-through or like randy said your front hand position or your the change in position in your front hand you're literally giving yourself more time for those mistakes to happen. 
Yeah, and that's a uh, a part of the equation. But I've got another theory. Uh, if you take, let's say you lock down uh, the riser of a bow, the handle of a bow, you lock it down and you pull back the, the bow uh, with some sort of apparatus, say it's a, a release on a string. And let's say one bow is 80%, let's say one bow is 60%. It takes much, much less force at full draw to move that release, the string, the, the loop, if you were to push on it from the side at full draw, it takes much less force to move that string left or right with a high let off bow than it does a low let off bow. Much less force. And when you're talking about interference with the face, there is a time element involved, but I believe it's more important the, the amount of force that's required. Because basically what you want to do is you want to allow the string to move forward unimpeded. You want that bow, you want to allow the bow to shoot the shot. If you allow the bow to shoot the shot, it's going to hit the same hole. However, when you interfere with the bow, um, it, 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 it's not going to hit the same hole. So what you want to do, again, what we're trying to do, what I'm trying to do, is I'm trying to make the bow more forgiving for the mistakes I made. Make One time my, my face might be a little heavier into the bow, one time it might not be heavy at all. I'm going to miss left and right because of that. But if I'm shooting a bow with lower let off, the same amount of force on my face is going to make that bow miss a shorter distance. It's going to make it miss less left and right than a bow with a high let off. Yeah, and that that same that same principle can be applied to the actual string tension, right? Because you know you're talking about how much force it actually takes to bend that. So when some people say, "Does a bow shoot more forgiving when the when you have the tiller bolts tightened all the way down?" It's not because of the limbs. A lot of people think the limbs are more forgiving when they're flexed all the way, but in my opinion, that that shootability and being more accurate really comes from the fact that when your limb bolts are tightened down all the way, you have the maximum string tension in that system. The more you back that off, then the weaker your string is. And ultimately, just like with what Randy said, the easier it is to vary that string you know, when you're making your shot. Any type of mistake is is easily going to be um, is easily going to get in the way, really, of what that string is trying to do, correct? Well, yeah, that that's true, but you take it one step further. I mean, you're kind of walking a fine line there because the heavier the bow oftentimes, the more people shake. So you have to be careful there. I do believe that in certain systems, and, and all the systems are getting better. I'm most familiar with Hoyt's, and, and it's not so much true anymore. However, uh, I've always shot with my limbs tightened all the way down, basically because the bow, because the limbs have to move, there has to be a little bit of tolerance. There's some tolerances with the limbs and the limb bolt. But when, when, the, when the limbs and the limb pocket sit on a limb bolt, and that limb bolt is locked down, he can't move left to right. And, and a lot of bows, not so much now, but a lot of bows, you know, historically, you know, those limbs would walk in the pocket left to right or the pocket would left walk left to right on the limb bolt. So tightening the limb bolt down served a function of actually making that bow more accurate because everything would 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 cycle in exactly the same place. Right. But yep. 
it, it is true what you said that you are creating a little more um, tension on that string, but with that tension also comes a little more draw weight, which you know if you're strong it's great. If you're not, it's not so great. Yeah, you definitely need to be shooting. I mean, I'm talking, you know, what's nice about, you know, I'll, I'll kind of, I try to stay neutral when it comes to the podcast, but you know, when, when, um, when we talk about Hoyt, they actually offer 60 or 65 or 70 pound max limbs in like in a hunting setup to where people can shoot the peak weight that they prefer with the limb bolts bottom down. And I think that's an awesome feature because really being able to shoot the a weight that you can maintain but still have that that added string tension I think is is pretty cool. Exactly. Well, exactly. Let's talk about one more thing quick before we before we cut off here and that's you know you talked about your bow and your hunting arrow and kind of you know you said you shoot a slightly slower arrow now so let's just one tell me what what you're shooting right now for a bow and then also what your what hunting arrow and weight you're shooting and what speed you're getting i think that would be cool for everyone to know well um i'm actually shooting last year's bow i never change over until after the hunting season we just finished in january uh, into January, so I haven't actually switched over yet, but I'll probably uh, be shooting one of the, probably the carbon um, spider, more than likely the 34-inch, but uh, that's really not important. Um, what, what's important, I think, is the the arrow weight and the arrow type, and, and what I'm trying to achieve with that arrow. Yeah. What I'm trying to achieve with that arrow is, well, first of all, let's let's go through the the specifics. Uh, right now, I'm shooting an, an Eastern Injection with the Ulmer Edge 125, which is a stainless steel uh, broadhead that's the same diameter as the uh, as the as that arrow, which right. is very very small in diameter. And then, I, in addition to that, I add quite a bit of weight up front uh, to my arrow. So my arrow, my whole arrow weight is about 500 grains. Yep. which is much, much heavier than most people shoot. And, and there's a, a method to my madness, and, and, and I've evolved to this, and I'll continue to evolve um, for years probably, but I've evolved to this for several reasons. Uh, one is, what I have found is I do, like you said, an, an extensive amount of shooting with a shooting machine. And, and also, you know, we have that 100-yard broadhead contest that I started 15, 20 years ago that that we shoot every summer, and, and what I've tried to do is, is find the most accurate setup I can, I can find. And one of the biggest variables in long-range shooting, of course, is wind drift, um, especially here in the West. We just have a lot of wind when you're hunting in the West. Uh, wind is, is, is a crucial element. And what I'm looking for is an arrow that, that won't drift much in the wind. Now, speed is somewhat important in wind drift of an arrow, but what's much more important is how much surface area that arrow has, you know, how much basically, this isn't exactly true, but just for, for the sake of our conversation, how much wind, I mean, how much surface area does the wind see? Yep, how much and, it pushes against. Yes, exactly, and with a very, very small diameter arrow and a very, very... Um, uh, aerodynamic broadhead, I don't have to use very much fletching at all. Yeah. I use very small fletching. 
and I'm able to, to group very well. And I get very, very little wind drift. I can take the arrows that I was shooting hunting with 15 or 20 years ago, and I will get literally three times as much wind drift in, say, a 15-mile-an-hour wind out of a shooting machine than I get with the current arrow I'm shooting. See, what you want is a very thin, very heavy, and I also like a big front of center. And, and there's a couple of reasons why I want to, uh, when I say a big front, I want a heavy front of center. I want a, uh, I want a lot of their mass up front. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is I've found that at long range, I tend to group better with more front of center mass. Um, and also, um, I believe that I get better penetration and, and that's theoretical. I haven't proven that, but, um, because when you hit an animal, obviously, it's not like hitting a McKenzie target. The foam's not perfectly, everything's not uniform. And, and what typically happens is you'll watch the arrow in slow motion and as it hits the target, and it will bend. So I'm shooting a very stiff arrow so that it doesn't bend as much. And also, the more weight you have in the front of that arrow, the less weight at the back of the arrow, the less energy is taking up in bending that arrow. Because in order to bend bend an arrow, it takes energy. I want all that energy directed into the penetration of that arrow. And that's why I shoot a really stiff arrow and a really heavy arrow. And finally, I'm getting a little long-winded, I realize, but finally, this probably the main reason I've gone so heavy on my arrow is because um, my favorite animal to hunt is this mule deer, old mule deer are very, very, they're kind of like an old whitetail buck. They're very sensitive, and they will jump the string just like a whitetail. And I've lost more big bucks from jumping the string than I have just for me outright missing or any other real reason. Um, so I've tried to make my equipment as quiet as possible. And the one thing that after you do everything possible you can do, the one thing that helps you shoot a quiet bow better than anything else is having a heavy arrow. Yep. Yep. And what's funny is, you know, you feel like, like you're kind of doing something different than what the industry's trending. And in a way we are, but you know, I know that anyone out there that has watched my show since the very first one, I've, I mean, one of the, the biggest, you know, things that I think Easton has done in the last several years is when they brought out brass inserts. I was so pumped to finally be able to put 75 grains or 50 grains up in the front of my arrow before putting my broadhead on there. And it was the same thing. You know, I really knew that having a heavier arrow that was a little bit slower, but that was way more stable and had much better ballistic characteristics than what a lot of these guys are shooting and my arrow actually weighs 509 grains it when i shoot when i shoot my heavier arrows now if i'm shooting whitetails i've shot some lighter ones especially if i know that i'm in timber and i'm you know i might be shooting a deer that's coming through on the rut and i might want a little bit of speed in case i don't have a range but for muleys for for any big game especially um, you know, I've always shot a smaller, uh, you know, micro diameter shaft with at least 150 total grains in the front and sometimes pushing up to 175. And you're right. The taking the wind factor out is critical. And the two most important things there, everybody and the factors are 
diameter and mass because those are the two things that aerodynamics and ballistically are going to be to your advantage. A heavier arrow with a smaller diameter is always going to give you more benefits. Absolutely. Now, you, there's a little one-upmanship there, John. Uh, you see, you shoot the 509. Well, this year I'm going to shoot a 510 grain arrow, just so you know. Uh, okay, uh, perfect. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, uh, you know, I, 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 I agree with you completely. Uh, people are going to smaller diameter arrows, and, and uh, it's, I, I, think it, I think it's great. Yep, yep. Absolutely. The one thing is, and and I've definitely been on Easton about this, is for some of the longer draw length guys like myself, you know, once I load the front of those up, I need to go to a stiffer size. And right now, you know, 330 is the max spine for the, for the particular arrow that you're talking about. And, and honestly, I'm sure you're shooting a 330 with the amount of weight you're putting up in front, and it's probably perfectly stiff. I really need about well, a 290 spine so that I can yeah. load it up, you know what I mean? Absolutely, and I've always shot the stiffest arrow they made um, because I really don't, I don't believe in, in this heresy, but I really don't believe that, um, I don't believe that you can shoot an arrow too stiff especially in the hunting situation. I, I believe, uh, I believe that, um, the spine of an arrow isn't nearly, I don't believe you can shoot a wee arrow that's too weak, but I think it's really, really hard to shoot an arrow that's too stiff. And I'm right with you. I wish they would make a, an injection arrow that, that was different. I, I'm sure, I'm sure they will, uh, if physically they can do it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's you know, just, that's it, just it. You know, you come uh, but, down. But to, I think they'll be able to do it with the with the carbon all carbon model. Whether they can do it with the AC, I, yeah. I, I don't know. But you know, you, you mentioned those brass inserts. I've actually been adding weight to to one of my arrows for years and years and years. I'm going to give your the listeners a little tip here. Um, what I've done for years is I take a um, a piece of of uh, um, solder and. Um, solid solder, and I just cut it off in, to length to, 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 and weigh it, and I put that in there. And if you put just a little bend in it, uh, just so it's a, it'll, uh, you have to kind of push it into the shaft, and then I just put a little bit of epoxy in it, and that works really, really well. And it doesn't seem, even though there's a little bend in it, it doesn't seem to affect the accuracy of the arrow out of the shooting machine. Yeah, yeah, that's a great tip for sure. Well, man, we've, uh, you know, it seems like every time we talk, time gets away from us, and it has once again. But, uh, hey, man, I really, really appreciate you joining us. And uh, for all you guys out there listening to the Knock On Podcasts, uh, make sure you tune in again and spread the word. Uh, we definitely like educating everybody as much as possible. And uh, I'm sure if I could let everyone give you a round of applause, man, we would all be deaf right now. So, <laughs> Well, uh, thanks for having me, John. Anytime you want to do it again, just let me know. All right, I will, man. Thanks a lot. All right, see ya. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing knockonarchery.com